Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. everyone. Kids, you can go to children's church. Take your Bibles and open up to Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. Joshua chapter 2, and uh, we are on this journey through the book of Joshua. So we're going to end up going through the whole book of Joshua, and I want to challenge you as we navigate through this, um, that you challenge yourself to read through the book of Joshua, okay, um, at least once by the time we end this series. So uh, it's really easy to do if you even follow just the outline we're using for this series. If you do that, you'll read the whole book of Joshua in about 12 weeks, um, I, I would even challenge you beyond that and say, challenge yourself to read it more than once, um, because you will see more and more of the picture that God is painting through this narrative. And uh, that's what this is. And I want to I preface that a minute, because sometimes if we haven't really been taught how to read Scripture well, we end up reading the Old Testament narratives and even the New Testament narratives the same way we read what's called the New Testament epistles or the book of Proverbs even, where we take a little nugget out of them and we say, oh, I guess this is what applies to me, and then we walk away from it and we stop reading. And the dangerous thing about that when we approach the narratives is the narratives is a story, and it's a true historical story here in Joshua that outlines a bigger picture that we are to see and we're to follow after an example that's modeled. And so if we don't encompass and view the whole picture that's painted here in a narrative, then we miss out on God's intent from his word. So that's one of the reasons I want you, I'm going to, basically in how this is outlined, we're going to take little sections of narrative uh, but this is really one whole narrative. And if you want to go further than that, the whole Bible, the story of Scripture is a full narrative in and of itself. And that means that you will not understand the depth and the breadth of God's will for his church and his people until you have done the work of reading the narrative as a whole from creation to the return of Jesus and the new new heavens and the new earth. So I, 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 let that be a challenge to you that if you have never read through the entirety of Scripture, I want to challenge you to do so because it will be one of the most transforming things you could do uh, because we here believe that the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is uh, able to uh, correct, reprove, to teach, to train us in righteousness. That's all what Scripture identifies the Word of God is for. So we, we want to encourage you to do that. And a piece of that too is, 
Say you get done with today and you want to do some more study. Um, take advantage of the curriculum, okay? We have written curriculum. It's available out these doors at Centerpoint. Those of you online, it's available via the link in your description. You click on Sermon Notes, and it's got a spot there for some follow-up questions. You can do that on your own. I encourage you to do it with someone else. Go through the book of Joshua together. Uh, we want to make that as easy as possible for you to navigate through. So take advantage of that. But where we are now in this narrative, just to bring everyone up to speed. So week one, we kind of established how did the nation of Israel even come to be? We went clear back to Genesis and walked all the way through Deuteronomy and ended with Moses death. Moses has been the leader in the nation of Israel for quite a few years now. And now he has died and the helm of leadership has been given to this man named Joshua. Last week, as we looked at Joshua chapter one, we saw that God specifically gave instruction to Joshua one about that. He had no need to fear, but he should be strong and courageous because ultimately the Lord was with him. And then beyond that, the Lord specifically instructs Joshua not to let any piece of the law depart from his mouth, but to meditate on it that they will have good success. So the nation of Israel has God on their side, and he's saying, if you abide by the structures I have put in place, then and only then will you be successful in what you're seeking to do. Okay? So that brings us up to where we are today, but I want us to understand something, to kind of paint the picture here of what... What might have been going on as they reached this point? You see, they had been here once before. If we go back to the book of Numbers, we see that the nation of Israel had gotten to the edge of the promised land once before when Moses was leading. God brought the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and established them, moved them according to his promise, exactly as he intended to to a place where all they had to do was cross into the promised land and take possession of it. And as the story goes, there is 12 spies sent in and they come back and they give a good report from the standpoint that, hey, guess what? The land is exactly as God promised it would be. Surprise, surprise. But they also brought back, all but two of the spies brought back a bad report. Man, there's these giants in here. There's no way we can stand up against these people of enormous size. There's no way we can do this. And there were two spies that spoke against this, Joshua and Caleb, who said, no, 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 no. The Lord is with us. We need to obey. And I'm paraphrasing there, okay? We need to follow what the Lord has instructed to us and do exactly as he has told us to do so that we will be successful. We need to trust The Lord, they chose not to. So after now wandering in the desert for 40 years as a result of their disobedience, after 40 years of watching a whole generation of people die off as a result of their disobedience to the Lord, here they are again, right on the edge, right on the edge of claiming once again God's promises. And that's where we pick up the narrative today. Ultimately, we see from God's instruction to Joshua 
that he, as long as he clings to the law of the Lord, he will be successful. But how in the world are they to begin this journey? And over the next two weeks, we're going to see them move from on one side to the other and begin their conquest. So uh, in all of this, you see our main theme here, that God is bigger. And this has application for us. And if you walk out of here with nothing else, I want you to walk out of here with that phrase. God is bigger. And over and over again, and preparing for this, reading the book of Joshua multiple times, this was just the primary theme that stood out. God is bigger as they were in even Deuteronomy or in Numbers when they faced these giants. If only they had clung to this truth that God is bigger. In each season that they went through as they came out of Egypt and saw the army coming and they complained, why did you bring us out here to die? They failed to see that God is bigger. They stood before the Red Sea and thought, how in the world will this whole nation of people cross over this way? But God revealed once again that he is bigger. And some of you here today need to hear that. Some of you here today may be facing the largest obstacles that you faced in your life, whether that be grief or health crisis or financial crisis or family crisis, or marriage crisis, you fill in the blank. And if there's one thing I want you to leave here with today, as we navigate not just today, but the whole narrative of Joshua, it's that God is bigger than whatever you're facing today. God is bigger than whatever you're going to encounter tomorrow. And God has proven Himself bigger than anything you have faced up to this point. And so to reiterate that, I want you to speak this. I'm going to count to three. We're going to do this each week because I really want us to grab hold of this church. I really want us to understand this and be able to speak this to ourselves, to speak this to our families, to speak this to our spouse, to speak this to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to speak this to our community. So I'm going to count to three and I want to see if you can blow me away the first time. Okay, instead of having to do it more than once. So when I count to three, I want you to say God is bigger. Okay, let's try this. Here we go. One, two, three. Yes. Oh, that was, it gave me chills. That was so good. And did you hear the resonance of that? Oh, I love it. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I want you to hold on to that statement. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the beginning of chapter 2, and we're going to see an unexpected narrative in the midst of this whole narrative of Joshua. Father, thank you for this truth that you are indeed bigger. May you help us to see this, help us to recognize this, help us to root into this, and that through it you would give us a motivation and a passion to encounter whatever we're going to face in the days ahead. And be able to declare, my God is bigger. Father, I pray that you teach us and establish this truth in your word today. More clearly, more evidently. Give us wisdom and unity as we move forward in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Let's start at verse 1, chapter 2. 
And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Wait, 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 wait. Hold up. Now, if you've skipped over verse one of chapter two before when you're reading Joshua, you need to stop a minute and think about what you just read. Here's these two spies. They're camped, okay? The, the nation of Israel is camped at Shatim. And if you use the maps at the back of your Bible sometime, you can see where this is, just on the other side of the Jordan River, which if you've never looked at a map there, you will see that the Jordan River flows between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. So you see the Sea of Galilee up to the north, and then you see the river come straight down, and then there's the Dead Sea. And at the southern portion of the Jordan River, just north of the Dead Sea, on if you're looking at your map... On the right side, to your, it'd be on the right side, okay, you'll see Shatim just on the side of the Jordan River, and right across from that is Jericho. So Joshua sends two spies into the land, which isn't a surprise, because that's what they did back in Numbers too. Then they sent twelve. Now he sent two. And he tells them, spy out the land, and especially Jericho, because that would have been their first stop. And of all the places for these guys to stop and lodge, they stop at Rahab, the prostitute's house. Surely, God could have found some other place for them to lodge, right? Surely, this had to be some fluke entity. Surely, how in the world did they end up here? Truth moment for us, church, as we think about just this one verse and we think about specifically the character of Rahab in this story. We're going to learn more about her role in this narrative. But here's a truth statement that we need to hold on to. God is in the business of using unexpected people to bring glory to his name. God is in the business of using the people who everyone else would think there's no chance. Why? Because when those people do something that brings glory to God's name, everyone, including that person, goes, this had to be God. You see, if God had used someone of authority or power or status, someone well-known, No one would have thought anything of this. And you're going to see more about what I mean as we go through this narrative. But listen to this church. God is in the business of using unexpected people to bring glory to his name. He did it with Moses. If you didn't know this about Moses, Moses was a murderer. He killed an Egyptian and then ran off out into the desert, established a life for himself. And then God shows up in a burning bush and says, Moses, I want you to go bring my people out of Egypt. And Moses goes, I don't talk well. You got the wrong guy. And God says, no, I got the right guy. You may not think you're equipped, but you are. God does the same thing we see even after the narrative of Joshua in the book of Judges. When he calls people like Gideon, this farmer. I resonate with the story of Gideon so much. Where Gideon's like, I'm just a farmer. I'm not a warrior You got the wrong guy, God. Surely there's someone else. God's like, no. 
I got the right guy. And by the way, you're going to get a bunch of people, but I'm going to narrow you down to 300 so that you don't claim this victory as your own. Fast forward even into the New Testament. Have you stopped to look at the disciples that walked with Jesus? These were not the type of guys you would think that Jesus was going to use to establish the church. Many of them illiterate. Can't read or write. They're fishermen, tax collectors. And everyone's looking around going, what? These guys? Church, God is in the business of using unexpected people to bring glory to his name. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. Now, look at verse 2. It says, And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. So, someone sees them. Someone sees the spies into Rahab's house, goes to the king, and the king sends to Rahab and says, You need to bring out these guys. Because they've come to spy out, search out the land. Bring them to me. Now imagine being in Rahab's shoes. Here she is, a part of her people group. These spies come into her house. They stay there. And now the king comes to her and says, bring them out to me. Decision time. Let's see what she responds with. Verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now, here's where a lot of people get hung up in the story of Rahab. Most of the time, the only mentions of Rahab that I have heard focus in on whether she was right to have lied. And people debate this all the time. Was she right because she saved the guy's lives, but she lied? Is that right? God said you shouldn't lie. And while this is a great thing that we can discuss, I have I love those conversations, by the way. I enjoy them, but I will tell you, focusing in on them is of no merit to you. That's not the point of the narrative. So we can talk about it from an ethical point. We can talk about it from a philosophical point. We can debate this back and forth. But Scripture does not come out and say, Rahab was wrong because she lied about the men being in her house. Nor does it say Rahab was excused because she saved the lives, so therefore the lie didn't matter. Scripture doesn't say. And so I want to caution you from getting caught up in the midst of that. And in this case, I want us to pause a moment and look at what Rahab specifically testifies to in the verses that follow this. Okay, so let's look at verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og 
whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, let's pause a minute. I want us to break this apart because there is so much in her testimony here that stands out and not only should be challenging as we look at how the nation of Israel treated devotion to the Lord many times, but even further how we often treat devotion to the Lord many times and can learn a lot from what Rahab says. First off, in verse 8 and 9, she testifies to a fear of Yahweh. So in your Bibles, some of you may see this capital L-O-R-D. And that is, that, that signifies, if you're, if your Bible has that, it's meant to signify that the Hebrew here, Yahweh God, the personal name of God here is what she is using. And in verse 8 and 9, specifically verse 9, says to the men, I know that the Lord has given you, Yahweh God has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Now we have to ask the question in this, why are they so afraid of the nation of Israel? Well, I'm going to tell you, it has nothing to do with the fact that they are a vast nation with an army. And as we're going to find out, they, regardless of size, are ineffective when they are outside of the will of God. That is, if God is not fighting for them, they will not succeed. This comes back to Joshua 1, where he, God specifically tells Joshua, you don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. You meditated on it day and night. Being careful to do all that is written in it, and then you will have good success. So this very fear that's been instilled in the people is a fear of what God, through the nation of Israel, is accomplishing. Now this is something that we often struggle with, because what does fear of God really look like? Well, in Proverbs 1, in Proverbs 1 it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In Proverbs 9.10 it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So based in that, biblically, we cannot truly establish knowledge, true knowledge or true wisdom apart from fear of the Lord. And we're going to see why we should have fear of the Lord based in Rahab's next statement. Verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord, Yahweh, dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. You see this? For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the sea. We have seen how Yahweh has gone before you and has made you successful. She testifies to the power of Yahweh God, the Lord. 
How often do you and I see and can testify to the power and faithfulness of the Lord in our own lives, but then we face a mountain in front of us and we question how big our God really is. So often we are prone to put ourselves in the seat that only God should have. And as a result of that, when we face a giant obstacle, all of a sudden, we seem to lose sight of what God has already done. Israel was prone to this, as we can see by the fact that they crossed the Red Sea and then got to the Promised Land and went, we can't do this. You're right, but God can. You may be facing a large obstacle right now, however big the mountain You may be looking at this and going, I can't do this. You are right, but God can. Why? Because God is bigger. He's bigger than the obstacle. He's bigger than the chasm. In verse 11, this is one of the most powerful pieces of Rahab's testimony. She says, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. He is God. Now, this is kind of a powerful statement in the sense that there's only three other times this before this that this language has been used. In Exodus 20, verse 4. It says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. In Deuteronomy 4.39, it says, acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. In Deuteronomy 5.8, it says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Why? Because just as Rahab says, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. He and He alone. And as a result of all of this, in verse 12, she says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, Yahweh, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. That you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. From all of this, we see that Rahab testifies to her own trust in Yahweh. Her own trust in the Lord As the only one who can spare her and her family. Why? Because the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And as Deuteronomy testifies, there is no other. Now, in verses 15 through 21, they kind of come to terms with this and talk about this and establish what this looks like and what it will look like. 
And then God uses this to powerfully encourage the nation of Israel. In verses 22 through 24, the spies return. They came down and they passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So how do we apply this story? We could ask the question, why is this even here in the midst of Joshua? We could read the narrative of Joshua without this story in it. But why is this here? The grace of God is stronger. If you encountered Rahab on the street today and you knew her story, you might be prone to think there was no hope for her. In this story, she lived in a place that God was about to destroy. Yet God not only saved her and her family. Rahab is included into the nation of Israel. We see that later in Joshua 6. And she's included in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. The grace of God is stronger. Ephesians 2 tells us you are saved by grace through faith and this is not of works so that no one can boast. It's a gift of God through Jesus Christ. You know what Hebrews 11 says? Hebrews 11.31 By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. There's really two points of application for you today. One, How do you choose to view people in light of their story? Do you write people off who you see as having no hope? Or do you believe the grace of God is stronger? Do you believe that God uses unexpected people to bring glory to his name? If we do, it should show in how we embrace people and how we come alongside people and how we share the gospel with people. Because I'm going to tell you right now today, no matter where you are at right now, Christ gave his life that you might have life. Whatever obstacle you're facing, whatever season you've been through, whatever trial you have endured, Jesus came that you might have life. And the promise of scripture is if you believe that the only way to the Father is through Jesus, because of his death, his resurrection, and his future coming, That you are saved. And there's this hope of transformation, of being made new, of being born again in Christ. And there is no stipulation or past hurdle that is bigger than the grace of God in Christ as it has been revealed. God's grace is stronger. But the second point of application is, what does your trust say about your faith? And as we look at the testimony of Rahab, in faith, do you fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord as the only one who has the ability to bring life into you and the only one who has authority to take it away? Do you fear the Lord? In faith, can you testify to the power of the Lord in your own life and in the life of others? In faith, can you testify to the sovereignty of the Lord? Can you testify to the reality that God's in control? 
in faith, do you trust in the Lord? Where is your trust at? Where are your eyes fixed? Is your faith rooted in that which will not perish? I'm going to ask the worship team to come. We're going to close with a song here. And um, as they do, I want you to reflect upon this. And the song we're going to sing is, uh, it's a newer song, but um, familiar to many of you. The song Waymaker. Do we believe that God is bigger than the obstacles in front of us? Do we believe that God can overcome any obstacle that's before us? If we do, then as we go from this place, we do so in faith. Not that we can accomplish something, but that God can. We have to leave here with... Eyes fixated on who he is and a confidence not in our organization, not in ourselves, not in me, not in our leadership, not in our country, but in the God of the heavens and the earth, because there is no other. And church, when we can align ourselves with who God is and his purposes and his plan and his vision. I have full confidence that we'll be successful. Not in the ways we, want, we think we want to be. But in the exact ways He's intended for us to be. And when we're in alignment with the will of God, there's no better place for us to be. Father, as we think about these truths, may You challenge us through the testimony and story of Rahab. Someone unexpectedly Used to bring glory to your name, to testify that you are God alone, God of the heavens and the earth, creator God, sovereign God, powerful God. God, help us to not only speak the truth that you are bigger, but to believe it and to live it for your glory. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen.
Light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. 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 That is who you As we go from here, help us to live that, that you are the way maker, Lord, that you will provide a way. May our eyes be more fully fixed upon you, the creator of all things. And may our hope deepen and our peace increase, a peace that surpasses understanding because we know that you are bigger, that you are in control, that you are sovereign, that you are holy, that you are good. We go from here today to proclaim these truths as you've called us as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.